0: Safe, clean drinking water is one of the things that allows us to have societies and have cities and have urban areas. Um, There were endless problems with waterborne diseases hundreds of years ago as people gathered together in in cities and the water would become contaminated and the well would become contaminated um, with things like typhoid and and various diseases that people didn't really understand. Um, But Water is really foundational to the society that we live in today. Without it, we could hardly imagine the types of density that we see in in the cities of, of 2023.
1: A couple of years ago, a really good friend of mine told me that he thought his stomach issues had been caused by drinking faucet water. And I thought, that is the silliest thing I have heard since the people who gave away all their belongings before the year 2000. Fast forward a couple years, my wife and I are flipping a house and living in it. We had no drinking water or water at all, and we were drinking bottles of water from the store. Then we get the house all fixed up, we get drinking water in it, and my stomach starts hurting. And I thought, man, am I just getting old? We're drinking a full glass of water, starts to hurt my stomach. Well, then I noticed that it was always hurting when I drank water. But then I had bottles of water at work, and that wasn't hurting my stomach. So what was going on here? What was going on in our water? Well, then I went up to Minnesota for a wedding, and when I drank the water up there, out of the 130-year-old house, my stomach didn't hurt. So there's an issue here with the water, and I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? Well... Here we are. We've promised this for a long time. Iowa's water is the topic for today. I'm Nicholas Lirio, your favorite host, and welcome back to the Prairie Farm Podcast.
2: I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist
3: I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan
2: Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater.
4: Angela from X and Root Homestead. Chris
0: Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working
4: Class Bowhunter.
1: Taylor Keen, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke
2: Fritsch. This is James Holtz. Joy
4: Van Garden.
2: Sam Sobolt, Phil Ebert. Julie Meechin. And you are listening to The Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm.
0: Prairie Farm. Prairie
2: Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast.
1: And now a quote from a famous person to evoke strong emotion. Water is the driving force of all nature. Leonardo da Vinci. Well, before we can get into the quality of Iowa's water and what we've done and what we can do about it, I want to dive into where water came from. I assumed it was invented by the Egyptians, like chariots and paper and balloons. But our good friend Keith Schilling, the Iowa state geologist from University of Iowa, had uh, to correct me. Where is Iowa's water from? Well,
5: ultimately, it's from precipitation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's start at the origin there, but... Uh, you want river water? You want groundwater? Do you want? Uh, Ooh, good question.
1: Shallow groundwater, deep groundwater. Let's let's jump way back. Okay, when did the Earth start getting precipitation?
5: <laughs> oh man, holy cow! This yeah. is going to be a long podcast. <laughs> oh, <man>. there. <laughs> Do we even know? Do we have any idea? Yeah, soon after, you know, it was all this molten rock, and it's eventually, you know hardened coalesced we have some sort of chemical reactions going on water so you know it's billions of years Mm -hmm. billions
1: okay so and then you skip forward a long time you get your first ice age and your second then i don't know how many ice ages there were apparently i never listened to my co-host kent Boucher's prehistoric prairie docuseries which goes over the ice ages but then you got the pleistocene which is the most recent ice ages right um and, and then you've got glacier receding. is is that Is that where our river water comes from originally? Like, what what kind of water was left behind in that? Yeah. So I got to
5: start a little bit further back. So Iowa's been glaciated five, six, seven, eight times over the last two million years. You know, glaciers come in, they melt, they erode, the another one advances, and so forth. If you go to North Central Iowa. Where it's relatively flat, that glacier was last here, say ten thousand years ago, hmm. which is you know kind of recent time for a geologist. If you go to southern Iowa, like Pella, around here, uh, the glaciers were last last year five hundred thousand years ago.
4: Mm. Oh, so that's you take a, a
5: landscape jump. like north central Iowa and you give it half a million years to erode, you're going to have southern Iowa. You know, so it's huh. like the same continuum of an old landscape and a young landscape together. That's why it's flat, where it gets hilly, and so forth.
1: Is that the Des Moines lobe? Yeah, the, the Des Moines recent? lobe
5: is the most recent advance.
1: Okay, so, so as the glacier recedes, what form of... Of water, and by that I mean, because I don't know the scientific term, what like rivers or reservoirs or lakes or wetlands. What what kind of water um, structures are left behind by the glacier?
5: Well, if you go to the Des Moines Lobe, a lot of it is uh, you know tile drain and so forth now. But when that first receded, it was just chock full of wetlands, and there was no drainage system. You know, mm-hmm. like if you go to southern Iowa, where every everywhere you look, there's a hill slope and integrated drainage that are working its way downhill Mm -hmm. Uh, with no time. You know, again, 10,000 years is a lot of time. Glaciers melted and there's no time for erosion. So there's really Mm -hmm. no drainage system except for what, you know, some glacial river and some man-made tile drainage and ditches now. So that's Mm -hmm. why we had so many isolated prairie potholes uh, and sloughs and so forth because there was no integrated drainage to take that water away so it just sat there in wetlands
2: so you know going back let's say a thousand years in iowa prairie would we have had like a lot of little lakes and ponds and
5: absolutely in north central iowa uh there are reports um, getting this second and third hand uh that you couldn't even cross that area because it was just one big slew of wet really mm-hmm. you know like that um the Skunk River bottoms, Mm -hmm. they said that was a nightmare to try and cross because it was just one big, muddy, wet
1: wetland. I know exactly what those wet, muddy slurs are like. Growing up, we had a really nice pond out behind the house, and my mom always told me I needed to go outside and play more. So one day my brother and I were out by the pond, and we found this muddy, slurry area, and we thought we better jump in there. And then we started wrestling and I was maybe 10 years old and he was about eight and we were caked in mud and we stomp on back to the house, which is about a quarter mile away. And then when we get home, I'm thinking, man, mom's going to be proud of us. We have deep proof of how hard we played outside. We both got a spanking. It's pretty interesting to find out where science has shown us that water has come from. And it's pretty cool to find out what water used to be like. If any of you all remember our podcast with John O'Keefe, who was the film director of The Last Prairie, he's talking about the Sandhill Prairies out in Nebraska. Well, he talked about being out there, the water was pristine, absolutely pristine. And I think it's safe to say that Iowa water isn't that way anymore, but it used to be my cousin was visiting for my wedding and I was, I think we were talking on the phone or texting a year or so later. And she was like, yeah, being in Iowa, it's one of my most vivid memories being out in nature and just, you know, she, so she sees Iowa as this very natural state. She lives in LA, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, maybe you see less concrete, but, uh, there's like, there's still a lot of artificial going on all over the well, place.
2: Yeah. There's a, uh I have not read this book. I've just heard it quoted from. Um, I think it's called just Food, maybe. And it's I mean, it's been out for a long time, maybe 10 years or something. A friend of mine told me this years ago. There's a part in there where he read that uh, Iowa is, you know, every, everyone makes that association that Nick just mentioned. You know, we're rural, we're countryside, natural. But Iowa as a state is just as modified from its original condition as is Manhattan Island.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is the most modified landscape on Earth, um, right? And so we lowered the water table over two-thirds of the state with drainage tile. We straightened our streams. We replaced all our um, perennial plants, hundreds of species in the prairie and wetland, uh, have been replaced with only two uh, plant species, both annual <laughs> yeah. crops, yep. corn and soybean. And, you know, so our entire state has been industrialized,
3: yeah, essentially.
4: Yeah. And, you know, as I said, this is the most modified landscape on Earth. Yeah, it's not paved, but nonetheless, it's, um, it's highly disturbed and highly altered.
1: The gentleman you just heard with us was Chris Jones, retired researcher for hydroscience and engineering at the University of Iowa, and for a long time was a colleague with Keith Schilling. He has written many, many articles and has compiled a book of his findings on Iowa water quality. If there is an expert, it is somewhere between Keith Schilling and Chris Jones. So we no longer have those pristine, fairy tale-looking rivers and streams and ponds and lakes and wetlands. So what do we have today? Yes, the water is very altered, but how? What does that mean? Well, Joy Van Weingarden, who you have heard on this podcast before, the project manager of the South Skunk watershed, joins us to discuss what some of the issues in our water today are. Well, some something like Red Rock, where you have a the biggest lake or reservoir in iowa why the freak is it brown
3: it is a giant sediment pond
1: a giant sediment so where
3: think i'm gonna i'm gonna make you answer this question okay what feeds lake red rock lake red rock is the biggest lake in iowa what feeds it
1: des moines river correct
3: correct where's the des moines gathering all that sediment from it comes
1: all the way from northwest iowa goes down through Des Moines you
3: were collecting everything that that river has in it, and you were letting it sit in like Red rock and the only way for it to escape is through the dam so guess what every year more soil comes in every year you're getting more runoff from mm. farms you're getting more runoff from and i you can't even just say farms people's backyard they put nitrogen on their their lawns yeah. you yeah. know like we put chemicals everywhere, so all that stuff that runoff that's coming down the Des Moines. Is ending up in Lake Red Rock. So, of course, it's going to be. A so, wouldn't it eventually pond.
1: just like fill up? Like, it is filling like up. Really? Yes.
3: Yeah. Um, I'm not a huge ice fisher. I've gone mm-hmm. a few times and I think it's really fun. But the people that consistently have ice fished, um, Roberts Creek, which is like kind yep. of an area um, on Lake Red Rock, what's that sonar thing? Is it sonar that like bounces and it tells you how deep? Radar. Is it radar? I don't, know. <laughs> I don't think it's radar.
1: I'm, I'm just here. <laughs> you man. were like
3: so confident. Yeah, like, radar. That's definitely not
1: it. I don't know. I think it's
3: sonar. I could be wrong. Don't quote me. You're talking about like what but the dolphins But it's a depth do? finder. So it it you have something that sits on the ice and it bounces down to tell you what the depth is beneath you. And okay. every year it gets like less and less.
1: It is in fact sonar. Ha-ha. <laughs> what the heck is radar? That's what the radar is. Radar is, yeah, I was
3: going to say, that's when you're going too fast. Oh, man. That's <laughs> speed. To the officer
1: who used his radar the other day and took away my rights to brag to my wife that I have never had a ticket before, I will never forgive you. Even though technically it was my fault for speeding. But it's not just sediment in the water. There are other discrepancies going on in this state's water. Let's give the mic back to Chris Jones to hear honestly some really sad news about Iowa's water.
4: So we have associations uh, between drinking elevated uh, nitrate water and human health. And so there is published research um, from the EU and from Wisconsin and some from Iowa that shows um, drinking water of say half the safe drinking water limit here, which would be five milligrams per liter, does increase the risk for um, certain cancers. Um, Mm. There was a study conducted here in Iowa over 20 years ago now that showed increased incidence of bladder cancer in women, especially from drinking high nitrate water. Mm. There's evidence from Wisconsin of increased cancer deaths in that state from drinking high nitrate water colorectal cancer, um, increased risk. And so there are um, studies that do demonstrate an association. What is maybe lacking at this point is the mechanisms by which um, elevated nitrate in drinking water drives um, this increased risk to cancer.
1: It is very important that I put a disclaimer in here. Association and correlation are not causation. They could be, but they aren't the same. So, before you get up in arms about nitrates being in the water, we need to do a little bit of a deeper dive. Thankfully, I was able to chat with a water quality specialist, Carl Schoenfield, who actually goes around the Midwest managing water qualities in reservoirs managed by the U.S. Army Corps, which... Red Rock, the largest lake in Iowa, is one. Why is it a big deal that it's in the water? Why can't water just handle a lot of nitrogen or nitrates and and phosphates?
6: Well, on its own, water can handle pretty much anything. But the problem is, it's not just the water that we have out there. We have algae and fish and a whole ecosystem of things that are living in this water and um, processing what we put into it. So... Um, The big issue with the nutrients is uh, they can cause algae blooms, which, you know, first of all, green water is disgusting. Second of all, that green water can turn toxic. Um,
1: What does can turn toxic mean?
6: So there are a couple strains of um, cyanobacteria, actually, what people call blue-green algae, that produce toxins. And this is kind of, it sounds a little nerdy to say, this is the cutting edge of algae science.
1: (laughs) You are right, man. That did sound nerdy to say, but I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Tell me about the cutting edge of algae science.
6: Yeah. As, um, you know, we've been looking a little closer at these algae blooms that form because of the nutrients or thriving off of of the nutrients that we put into the water, um, a lot of research has been focused on these cyanobacteria, these blue-green algae, and we have known for a while that they can bloom under certain scenarios. You know, they like warm stagnant water. They like lots of phosphorus and nitrogen in your water. Um, but we still don't quite understand what causes them to turn toxic. It's some kind of environmental trigger or competition trigger
1: so does toxic mean if I drank it, I would get very sick?
6: Well, it's all, it all depends on how much toxins in the water. Um, you've probably seen stories about dogs drinking toxic algae water and dying. Um, oh,
1: from like ponds and stuff.
6: Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's the same kind of stuff, only now we're seeing it um, you know, on the main stem of the Des Moines River.
1: Hmm. So what's the difference in, in like a mossy pond and an algae bloom? Algae bloom. Algae I don't know. Algae bloom.
6: (laughs) Who's looking at it, really? Oh. You have a lot of stuff on, you know, more stagnant water. You know, a lot of that can be duckweed, can be green algae that looks disgusting, but isn't really going to harm anyone. But this cyanobacteria, those can turn nasty.
1: Hmm. Like, if a human drank enough of it, they would die.
6: If a human drank enough of it, they would die. And there's growing research that um, long-term exposure to some of these algae toxins, um, microcystin especially, that's the name of the toxin that we're most concerned about here in the Midwest. Long-term exposure to these algae toxins can cause a whole host of other health issues.
1: Well, as my wise father, Carol says, that is not good, but all hope is not lost. I had the privilege to be able to speak with the CEO of Des Moines Waterworks on the issue of filtering out very dirty water. His name is Ted Corrigan. And I know in the past there has been controversy over the Des Moines Waterworks. And frankly, I was going in expecting some high-minded CEO driving a big old fancy car Talking like he's better than me with all this red tape, public representative bull crap that no one understood and didn't answer any real questions. And you know, I was humbled very quickly. Ted and all of his team around him are amazing, humble, kind, hardworking people. I was very, very impressed. From the cars that they drove, to the work that they were doing, to the attitudes of the people who walked in that building, I have to hand it to Des Moines Waterworks; They were awesome. One of the great puzzles that that team has to solve is how to filter out nitrates and sediment from the Des Moines River and the Raccoon River. This is not an easy feat. So here's Ted, Explaining the crazy process that goes in to filter all of these crazy things. But can you run us through briefly what it means to filter water here at Des Moines?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's an important point uh, to make before we get to that. And the important point is that we at Des Moines Waterworks are a surface water utility. And that makes us somewhat unusual, at least in the state of Iowa, because most of the communities in the state of Iowa drill a well and they take water out of the ground and they Mm -hmm. treat it just a small amount and they deliver it to their customers. There isn't enough water underground for us to do that. Mm. We could not supply 600,000 people with water from underground wells.
1: 600,000 people is about 20% of all of Iowa.
0: So, We are a surface water utility, which means we use water that comes directly out of either the Des Moines or the Raccoon River or water that comes from very shallow wells, you know, 50 foot deep wells immediately adjacent to the Des Moines or the Raccoon River. And All of that water is influenced in terms of its quality by what happens in the river. So for the purposes of this discussion, let's imagine, or let's understand we are treating surface water. We're treating river water. Hmm. So when we bring that water into the treatment plant, the first thing we have to do is get the dirt out. Yeah. And if you just let the water sit in a bucket and settle out, it would take months for the water to completely settle out and be clean enough for human consumption. We don't have months, so we have to run it through a process that we call um flocculation coagulation sedimentation so we add a chemical to the water that makes all the little pieces of dirt stick together and form big pieces and then those big pieces settle out very quickly they drop Mm. to the bottom of the tank yeah we scrape them away we send them away and we take water now that is much cleaner we combine it with that shallow well water which skips that first step and we send it through a process that we call lime softening And lime softening is intended to reduce the hardness. It removes hardness causing minerals. We do that by raising the pH really high, you know, chemistry from high school. Um, It makes all of the dissolved things in the water um, turn into particles. And then Mm. again, we add more uh, coagulant to make the particles stick together. All of that settles out again. We scrape it away, get rid of it, and now we have um, soft water that has had all, basically all the particles removed out of it. The other really great thing about lime softening is that it raises the pH very high, and nothing can survive that. So viruses and bacteria that aren't caught up in the particles that sink, um, they can't survive that high pH. So now they're they're dead. Hmm. So pretty much by the time the water comes out of that process, there's nothing living in there anymore. Nothing wow. that's going to hurt goodness. you. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. Goodness. <laughs> Then we run the water through filtration, sand filtration. So just fine sand. We have all these tanks down at the plant filled with fine sand. The water runs through and, them. And they're huge, right? They are I was huge. I,
1: I think of a tank like the size of a room, like, you know, a room we're sitting in, maybe like 10 by 20 or yeah. something like that. But they're like gymnasiums or something like that.
0: Yeah, or like the size of a house. You know, there's 16 of them and each of them is about the size of an average house, an average three bedroom house. Uh, they're pretty good size.
1: And how, how many times, is it like several times per day does one of those fill up and drain? or
0: It's a continuous flow process. Okay. So we're continuously putting water on the top, and it filters down through and out the bottom. So it's continuous flow. And we can flow water through them to filter out any remaining sediment for about 40 hours, and then we have to backwash the filters. We take it offline, hmm. run water through it in the reverse direction, bubble air through it, um, create a kind of a mixing action to loosen up any sediment that got stuck on the sand. We wash that all away. It actually goes back to the beginning of the process where we make sure and remove it at an earlier step. Hmm. Um, and then this filter is ready to go again. So that's just, a, it's constantly happening all day, every day. We're Man. filtering water through all those filters. They're aging, ripening, they call it. They get 40 hours on them. There's 16 of them, so we kind of do it in Is turn. it 24 hours a day? 24-7, 365. Or is oh, yeah. this
1: all autonomous out there?
0: You know, um, we have people here 24-7, 365. Wow. So there are people here watching, but it's all computer controlled, and it's all, um, you know, there's remote control. But then there are also people here monitoring and watching and just make sure everything's working properly.
1: Man. So, and I need to, I, I don't have a big science brain. So for all mm-hmm. my non-big science people out there, which... We found out most of our people actually are really into the science that listen to this. But uh, the you go through kind of a chemical process, a bonding mm-hmm. and um, acidifying, pH level raising.
0: That's right. We uh, use chemistry you know, yep, to, yep. to um, remove things from or dissolve particles, turn them into solid particles, and we settle them out. So, yeah, and then you go straight
1: in into pouring it through sand right and and uh, you know a a filtration system how many uh well i guess you're not done i I have a question but you know you're
0: not done yeah so after the water is filtered um through the sand filters then it goes um, to the clear well and before it gets to the clear well we add fluoride for dental health protection and we add chlorine for disinfection to kill anything that the high ph didn't kill or that wasn't Mm. captured as it as it filtered through the sand We add chlorine and then we have a a 10 million gallon, what we call a clear well, just a huge uh, kind of quadruple gymnasium sized tank Hmm. that the water has to move through very slowly so that the chlorine is in contact with the water for enough time to ensure that anything that might possibly be still alive in there is neutralized. Usually by the time the water gets there, there's nothing left, Mm -hmm. but that's kind of the last step. Yeah. And then, the process that I just described is, is pretty much finished. It's called conventional lime softening treatment. Conventional just means that the technology's been around for 150 years and we've been using the same technology. Um, and that's really effective at at uh, guarding against conventional contaminants like dirt and ba- viruses and bacteria and things that have been a challenge for uh, water systems for you know more than a century. Uh, but now we're starting to see some what I would call more contemporary or non-conventional contaminants like nitrate, yeah, which you asked about. So at the end of that system, at the end of that process, we also have a nitrate removal facility. But my
1: understanding is that's not always running. You're not always using it. It's just when nitrates really high in the raccoon or the Des Moines.
0: That's absolutely right. So we monitor nitrates in the rivers, of course, and throughout our process continuously with online monitoring equipment and we watch the concentrations. And if they start to approach the drinking water standard, which is 10 milligrams per liter of nitrate, then we take a side stream of water um, out of that clear well before the chlorine is added. And we run it through the nitrate removal facility, which is an ion exchange process. And we can talk as much or as little as you want about that.
1: I know that it sounds expensive.
0: It is expensive, about $10,000 a day to run wow. facility. Right.
1: That is wild. So, how often does it get turned on?
0: You know, it varies widely. Um, this huh. year, 2023, we haven't used it at all. Okay. That's Last a good year in 2022, we used it for 25 days. Okay. The three years before that, we didn't use it at all. Uh, in 2015, we used it for 117 days or 170 days. I'm sorry, I don't have the Straight
1: number. or kind of on and off or?
0: Pretty much straight. Man. Pretty much straight. Um,
1: and is it just every morning you go and test the Raccoon River or something like that? And you say, oh, it's way, it's real high. We need to. We turn actually around. have
0: online monitoring on the Raccoon River. We work with USGS. They oh. have um, river gauging stations where they measure for flooding and, and exactly mm-hmm. how much water is in the river. And we've worked with them to fund some nitrate monitoring equipment on various gauges upstream from us. And so we watch those very carefully. And then we also do our own nitrate testing on a daily basis here in the plant. And then on the filter effluent or where the water comes out of those sand filters, we have an online monitor that's monitoring 24-7, 365, and we watch that. And so between all of that monitoring, we have a pretty good idea of when it's going to get there and when it's going to be time to start.
1: Man, that is a lot of science. And and just so people know, nitrates are... They're a big deal. If you think like, oh, you're overkilling for nitrates. And I've, I've heard people say like, it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. Uh, I, I'm not saying it happens all the time, but infants have died from, uh, not, there's uh, too much uh, over the 10 parts per million nitrates in water. And um, there are studies that it's not a cause and effect, but I was reading two different studies that talked about cancer is, um, there's a correlation between too high nitrates and certain kinds of cancer. So it's not a small deal, and so the extra precautions are are really cool. And it, it shows, you know, despite what uh, what opinions you may have of utility companies, that uh, Des Moines Waterworks is at least trying. You know, their their best to pull everything out that they can. Um, a question that's a little more anecdotally: uh, When people say the water here is really hard, what do mm-hmm. they mean by that?
0: Hardness is a measure of the dissolved minerals. Okay. In water, specifically calcium and magnesium, mm. and calcium and magnesium are the minerals that tend to form scale. If you have if you have very very hard water, you'll form scale on your faucet. You know you'll get that mm-hmm. white kind of crusty business on um, hanging off the end of your faucet, or you can even see um, scale around your toilet bowl where the water level sits, mm. or in a teapot where you're boiling water off all the time, you'll get a scale on the inside yeah. of it. And if you have very hard water, it will scale up your water heater as you're constantly heating water in there. Hmm. That, that uh, hardness will come out of the water and, and form scale. Hardness minerals in water also interfere with the, um, uh, the activity of soap. And so your soap won't suds up as much and your detergents won't work as well. Now, most of your commercial detergents now have um, additives that kind of capture the hardness and and allow the soap to work. But um, we do soften the water so that it won't be um, scale forming. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, we soften our water to 150 milligrams per liter. That's our target. Um, some people would consider that still to be moderately hard, but we believe that's uh that's a just the right level where it's not going to interfere with your soap, it's not going to plate up the inside of your water heater, mm-hmm. it's not going to form scale um, in your teapot or on your faucets. We think that's just the right balance of removing hardness and cost effectiveness. Yeah, and so that's that's our target.
1: Man, because they're, I mean. There are lots of things from drinking this thing that we absolutely need or we will die that mm-hmm. could go wrong. And if they go wrong, we would die. And I'm not saying that calcium and, and water being too hard is one of them. But no. uh, uh, it's just it's amazing how much of a process it has to go to as to go through before we can have safe drinking water. And- Woo wee. McDonald's chicken nuggets aren't processed that much now. I'm not blaming Des Moines Waterworks. They've got to do what they gotta to do to make water safe for 20% of all of Iowa. But what happened? Iowa water surrounding its prairie was some of the cleanest in the world. And now we're having to chicken nugget the water. What where did we go wrong? Thankfully, our experts. Have some thoughts on this.
3: Well, there's a lot of bank erosion. um, And part of that is our fault as human beings because we straightened the river in the, was it the 20s, the 30s? I'm not sure when it was, but we literally took like drag lines and we straighten the river. Rivers naturally meander and they wave, right? Mm. They go with the contour, they work their way. That's a natural system. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on here, but God created it that way so that it can slow water down so that water doesn't rush fast because rushing water cuts banks rushing water is going to create a Mm. wider channel and every year that channel is getting more and more in size because it's cutting the banks right that's why you're like oh you ever like kayak down the river and Mm -hmm. it like a tree is like just hanging on barely for dear life (laughs) you're like that (laughs) thing ain't making it by next summer like we got one bad storm and those roots you can see them like it's coming down every year it cuts and cuts more but water needs to be slowed down that's why rivers naturally meander yeah peace like a river you know the what we have now going down the river is, is a rushing <laughs> rapid river. You yeah, know, when we get those crazy rains. It's, that's what's cutting those banks.
1: There are way more things that affect Iowa's water quality than rushing rivers. But I want to perseverate on this one just a little bit because it is fascinating. We as humans straighten rivers. It seems impossible, but we did it. And we did it very, very well. Rivers were not rushing gushes of water. 200 years ago when the settlers got here they were actually probably a lot more shallow and a lot wider but let's have an actual expert like keith Schilling talk about it
2: and how deep would the mississippi river have been then compared to now basically the same or a lot more shallow it could have been more shallow
5: um you know with the locks and dam systems and the and the structures they have on the rivers they mm-hmm. want to maintain that 8 foot depth for barges and stuff mm-hmm. so they've artificially deepened it where the barge traffic is at so mm-hmm. they can they can control the current and that current is going to self clean <clears throat> the river channel to a depth mm-hmm. of about 8 feet huh. um so you know if it was left to its own it might be wider and shallower uh for sure the thalweg which is a great term for the deepest part of the channel okay. that thalweg would have been moving all over the place you know as sure. the river's meander it's typically deeper on the outside bend then it mm-hmm. crosses over and it gets shallow and then it's deeper on the other side on the next meander bend so if the before they controlled the mississippi you know if you were taking a barge there you would be going like all over left huh. and right back and forth what they've done now is kind of straightened it controlled that the current and make a kind of a straight shot for the, for the barge traffic. That that was
2: very interesting. Yeah. And I mean, even since then, that brings up another thing I was going to ask you about all. So channelization of the Mississippi river, of course is a big deal, but a lot of other smaller, uh, you know, what do they call those, uh, lower order streams, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, those, you know, whether the farmer did it himself or, you know i don't know if the ccc did any channelization work back in the 30s maybe i don't know yeah it was Uh, uh,
5: a lot of it happened um really early
2: but it happened to like almost every yeah every stream of any size right yeah in iowa
5: yeah so we've we've done some work on that and, and you see that channelization is everywhere so like uh um Typically, a stream would go back and forth and meander back and forth across the landscape, and you can take the uh, the linear distance between the stream, you know, from one point to another, versus the curved distance of the of the channel, mm-hmm. and that ratio should be like you know one and a half to two you know like two times Mm. the the lateral distance compared to the straight line distance yeah and and today in a lot of streams it's like 1.1 essentially saying there's no curve and it's straight yeah Yeah. you know so you can look at that meandering ratio and say you know just as a quantitative measure say how much our streams have been channelized and when you channelize a stream what you do is um you concentrate all the energy energy in the channel Mm -hmm. and so um you've 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 made it so it's a, it wants to carve down. So it's like it, can, it tends to keep eroding uh, at mm-hmm. depth. And so you get this straightened channel with a lot of stream power and energy in it. And it wants to carve down into its base. Mm-hmm. And so it gets deeper and deeper. And then because it gets deeper, and, uh, the banks become unstable because they're it's too vertical. So the banks will collapse and collapse and collapse. So you mm-hmm. get this kind of like uh, uh, self-fulfilling thing going on. It's like... As we straighten uh, rivers and streams and as we throw more water in with, uh, you know, tile drainage and surface runoff, Mm -hmm. we remove vegetation. All we're doing is putting more stream energy, more water energy in the channel. And we get down cutting and we get widening and we get a lot of like, um, you know, degradation of our stream network anymore. But
2: we become more vulnerable to like flash floods and so forth, too. Right. Oh, sure. Yeah.
5: yep. The flash floods themselves are, are coming from the landscape. You know, mm-hmm. like, right. you know, you get intense five-inch rain, water's moving regardless, you yeah. know. Yeah. But there's really not much on the landscape to slow it up during mm-hmm. yeah. when the crops are not growing. Now, you know, when the crops are, you know, six feet high, there's a lot of surface roughness on the land. So that same rain, you know, this is the best time for a, a rainfall to have less impact because there's a lot of roughness. But sure. if you go out in uh, April and there's yeah. nothing on the land except bare dirt something like that could have be catastrophic
1: mm, really man but doesn't so you were saying that the river digs itself down digs itself down uh isn't that fairly natural though like that's what I with the grand canyon right or am i totally off on that no you're right that's uh but that's a, a kind of a different
5: geological process because even the grand canyon we change the base level we get uh you know catastrophic floods from glacier meltwater we do all sorts of things that cause that but just kind of a different time scale you know Mm. millions of years versus you know 100 years since settlement yeah you know so what we've done here is caused all these changes uh since the settlers first came in the you know late 1800s so we've got quite a you know uh anti-beaver story going on here you know as we're (laughs) We are definitely the geomorphic agent
1: of uh, Iowa's uh, (laughs) rivers. So we straightened some rivers. We caused a few floods and now the rivers move a little more quickly and there's a little bit more dirt in them. Whoop-de-doo. Well, as you recall, sediment's actually a pretty big deal, especially when it starts settling in the bottom of lakes and, and reservoirs, which start to fill up. But there are some more major changes that humans have made to the waterscape of Iowa.
4: Well, our biggest problem is nutrient pollution. And so the nutrients, uh, the primary nutrients we talk about here are nitrogen and phosphorus. We're probably, uh, not probably, almost certainly um, the worst state in the country for um, nitrogen pollution. Um, Phosphorus, it probably is between us and Illinois. And so these nutrients get into the water and they... Uh, provide the opportunity for algae to bloom uh, really explosively and cause our water to be a real opaque green. The nutrients also get into the Mississippi uh, River and go down to the Gulf of Mexico, uh, causing algae blooms in the Gulf Uh, when the algae blooms die down there. it causes oxygen to be, be depleted from the water column, and then that creates a dead zone off the, off the coast of mm. Louisiana. And then here in uh, locally, we have impairment of our drinking water. Uh, nitrate nitrogen is a regulated drinking water contaminant. We have about 6,000 6, to 7,000 wells in Iowa that have been contaminated with nitrate above the safe level for drinking. We have about 25% of our population that drinks uh, municipal water that's been treated for nitrate removal, and we have about a third of our public water supplies. um, There's about 900 uh, public water supplies in Iowa. About a third of them have been been deemed vulnerable to nitrate contamination. Hmm. So we have problems with our drinking water, and then we have problems with the impairment of Uh, our natural waters for recreation and angling and paddling and these sorts of things. We also have E. coli uh, issues and so E. coli is what we call an indicator bacteria. It lives in the digestive tracts of vertebrates and when we see E. coli in the water at elevated levels that's an indicator that there's fecal material in the water And so we have so many livestock here in Iowa that we've basically saturated the landscape with E. coli and they've become naturalized um, to the environment. And so when we get rainstorms, they get flushed into our um, streams. And so we have many of our streams are impaired for E. coli also.
1: Note to self, don't wash my face in a stream after a hard day's work next to a river. You will get pink eye. Yeah, man. So with the the nutrient contaminant, what is the biggest causer of that? You were saying it like gets in our water, but where is, it, where is its source? So
4: row crop agriculture is the biggest contributor to nutrient pollution. Oh, man, you pollution. just went right out. <laughs> <laughs> Ro- yes, row crop agriculture is the biggest contributor to nutrient pollution. Um, the Iowa Nutrient Reduction... Uh, Strategy uh, did a science assessment clear back in uh, 2011 and 2012. Determined about 90 to 95% of the nitrogen uh, is coming from agriculture, and about 80 to 85% of the phosphorus is coming from agriculture. So, man, this is not a secret. We've known this since the 1970s. What do you mean all
1: this pollution is coming from agriculture? Farmers I know are well-meaning people, and I mean that seriously. They are well-meaning people, and no one would take a bag of phosphorus or nitrogen and just dump it in a river nearby. So how in the world are these fields of row crop feeding our water with phosphates and nitrates? Our good friend over at Des Moines Water Works, Ted Corrigan, has that answer for us.
0: One of the things that we recognized was that tile drainage has a significant impact on Mm. water quality in our in our rivers and streams and tile drainage is basically installing pipelines in agricultural fields that lower the water table or remove water from the landscape so that um, corn specifically um, can grow more effectively yeah Uh, corn doesn't like to have its feet wet is what they say Mm -hmm. doesn't want its roots to get down into the water and we believe in fact the science tells us that tile drainage interrupts the natural water cycle. So normally if you have snow mm. melt on a, on a landscape or rain falls on a landscape, that water that soaks into the ground will spend weeks or sometimes even months or more working its way through the soil profile, being cleansed by natural processes before it kind of daylights out into a river or stream, um, sometimes you know, miles away, uh, hundreds of yards away. Uh, That's a very effective process, and it does a nice job of of cleaning the water before it gets to the river or stream. Tile drainage interrupts all of that, so the snow melt or the rainfall only has to penetrate the ground a few feet, and it hits a tile, and it's immediately discharged into into the stream. And anything in that soil profile that happened to be soluble, like nitrate or other things typically associated with agricultural activities, uh, are picked up by the water and, and they're taken hmm. in the tile and, and delivered directly to uh, the surface water, you know, the river or stream. If you go up into north central Iowa on the Des Moines Lobe where it's incredibly flat, um, you have landowners who don't even have a ditch or a creek to daylight their tiles into. And so they've formed quasi-governmental entities called drainage districts. And these drainage districts band together and they build huge tiles. Sometimes they're 48 inches in diameter. And wow. everybody ties their tile lines into these county tiles. And so it's like
1: a giant agricultural sewage uh, uh, system.
0: It's like a giant ag storm sewer kind of a thing. That is crazy. I and didn't what, know that. What we said was, hey... You know, when you go to the riverbank and you see a 48-inch pipe dumping water into the river. And I'm
1: sure it's very brown-looking water. You know,
0: it's very clean-looking water. Oh, really? But it's very high in
1: nitrate. Oh, so it's, it's not carrying the sediment. It's carrying the nutrient. That's right.
0: Okay. That's exactly right.
1: These giant storm sewers of agricultural fields were such a big issue that the Des Moines Water Works had to file a lawsuit to get any sort of change. You can hear more about it in the podcast with Ted Corrigan when we release the full episode. Man, straightening the rivers so that there's gushing water and sediment falling off the banks. Large field tiles that are just draining nutrient into the rivers which are gushing down towards the Gulf Stream or even having to be dealt with by Des Moines Waterworks or other water treatment plants. And we can't forget the animal poop. Now, this is where it gets a little bit of a harder conversation, because all of these things, and there are others, but these are the big ones. All of these things have to do with one specific thing. Agriculture. We love our farmers. We want to be very clear that we love our farmers. All of our neighbors are farmers. Many of my friends are farmers. Kent's family has farmed for years and years. We are surrounded by people who either farm or support farmers, and we support our farmers. But we cannot look away from the fact that there are symptoms of things that could be done better. And I think if we take a close, hard look at this water issue, I think we have an opportunity to instead of trenching ourselves in how we've always done it, to make really awesome changes for our futures and our children's future. But what can be done? Is there even any hope at fixing this problem which we have caused over the last hundred years? Well, I'm here to tell you, yes, there's lots of hope and things can be done, but we will save that for the second and final installment of the Prairie Farm Podcast, Iowa Water. Please remember that we are sponsored by Hoxie Native Seeds. We at Hoxie Native Seeds are passionate about conservation. And there are several ways that you can partner with us in our endeavor of conservation. The first is just talking about it. Talk about what you have heard today. Talk about it with friends, talk about it with peers, talk about it with your parents, with your children. Secondly, you can share this podcast. If you think there's someone else that would enjoy it or would greatly benefit from hearing it, please share it and think about leaving a five-star review as that helps other people see our podcast as well. And lastly, if you are needing any prairie seed, any wildflower seed, or Midwest native seed, please give us a call or visit our website, hoxynativeseeds.com or theprairiefarm.com. And remember, conservation happens one mind at a time.